0: This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Well, good evening, everybody. So it's a, a tremendous uh, pleasure to have you here and and have a conversation with you. Um, so let's start yeah. talking about the book, yeah. um, Latinx. Can you explain to us the title? Okay,
1: um, the title came about because the uh, book was originally um, <clears throat> intended to be... Uh, a book about racial identity um, among Latinos. Um, And uh, racial identity is kind of a controversial subject among Latinos, I don't like to talk about it. Um, And, uh, but when we were trying to narrow down what the title was gonna be, um, uh, a lot of my students had um, been talking about this uh, Latinx term, right, or Latinx. And, um, they explained to me that it was about, um, uh, you know, not wanting to identify, uh, along the gender binary. And so I thought, well, that's really interesting because, you know, when I talk about race, you know, I'm, uh, we don't, uh, a lot of us don't like to identify along the racial binary of black and white. And I thought that the, uh, <clears throat> the title, Using Latinx in the title would reflect this uh, growing um, peop- uh, number of people who want to use the word, not necessarily because you know they um, <clears throat> they they don't want to identify on the on the on the gender binary, but but they want to be in- inclusive of people. Um, and I noticed how this sort of went along with some intersectional politics that have been going on. So um, I thought it would be a a great title for the book. And um, yeah, it's basically about um, another way to look at Latino identity that's not just through a race lens and not identifying in that binary, but also looking at that, which is it's uh, futuristic, you know, because uh, um, it represents this move toward the future. And then I think that it's really interesting that um, Latinos or Latinx people um, and it's slowly catching on, are the only um, racial ethnic group that has chosen a word that reflects this new inclusivity. And I think that it's not an accident. I think it's part of the multiple identification that we have. That
0: we have. Can, can we say that it's a little bit of a rebellion against the patriarchal expectation of people of you are supposed to behave in a certain way? from both both cultures i mean yeah. from Latin America well and you know and i
1: think that most of the people that are objecting to the term are they use this excuse that it's not a natural formulation of the spanish language but it seems much more that they're a little threatened by the idea of you know the that patriarchal thing being questioned and so you know i think it's a really positive Thing. And I think that it also reflects how U.S. Latinx, uh, you know, uh, I think that U.S. Latinx have a unique culture because it's not, as I talk about in the book, it's like it's Latin American culture, but then it goes through in a transformation by interacting with the United States. And um, I think one of the positive things about uh, our experience in the United States is to, is has been really um being affected by uh, different ways to look at race and sexuality and gender, which um, we're a, a little bit ahead in the United States, uh, and it allows uh, some of the imperfections of Latin American nationalist identity, which includes a lot of patriarchy and anti-women stuff and um, and anti-gay stuff, you know, to to you know evolve into something different. You know, evolve into something different.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's amazing to me is that it it really addresses mm-hmm. both sides of the border, right, Actually, so the yeah. north and south. So that's I think it's it's, it's a beautiful concept of of, of, of mm-hmm. owning uh, the potential of yes. different identities. Yes. Cool. Very good. So, so let's let's talk more about one of the key aspects of the book, which is the the mm-hmm. the binary that yeah. we find in terms of race, yeah. The, yeah. the white black yeah. uh, binary, and how how that's um, uh, Latinx are mm-hmm. questioning the the idea of, of Latinx questions right. that binary.
1: Um, you uh, you mean both racial and gender binary? Yeah.
0: Uh, let's, let's stay with the with, uh, with, uh, right. uh, race. Right. Well,
1: right. Um, you know, I go through a long description in the book about how uh, la- la- many Latin American countries, not all, because particularly in the southern Cone, and I'm talking about Argentina and Chile, um, those societies were less interested in creating an ideology, a shared ideology, that uh, there was a mixed race culture and it was, it was strong for the national identity. Um, You know, a lot of countries like uh, Mexico and Brazil, um, after the era of race science in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, they were presented with this dilemma because race science was supposedly the scientific uh, way of showing that, um, well, races could be superior to each other. And and they also talked a lot about uh, non-white races as being inferior. So what are Latin Americans going to do in the elite uh, Latin Americans, how are they going to deal with the, uh, this idea that um, um, they're going to be uh, <clears throat> they're going to be seen as an inferior country because there are people from all these other races? So they decided, uh, particularly in Mexico and Brazil, to create this ideology that said, no, the fact that we have a mixed race society um, is a part of our strength. But the problem is that. Um, the the way that they celebrated the mixed race society was a way that privileged um europeanness and sort of encouraged people to uh <clears throat> um elide or you know disappear their african and indigenous roots so then what i talk about in the book is that um when Latin, when latin americans come to the united states as immigrants uh, and they're faced with the white black racial binary um, they have a choice where they can either just try to assimilate as- as white or sometimes they choose to assimilate as African Americans um, or you know they um, they they can use their mixed race identity but in a way that uh, that allows them to rediscover their african indigenous roots and so one thing that I talked about was that in the seventies, a lot of the nationalist movements that were going on um, <clears throat> with Latinos on both coasts um you know obviously the chicano movement was really a celebration of indigenousness and identifying with being native american and in the east coast a lot of caribbean groups um strongly embraced their uh, african identities so what i'm saying is that the failings of mestizaje in latin america um could at least potentially be flipped um through the uh, u.s experience and then how is that relevant now um it's relevant because many Latinos who feel like they have a mixed race identity and feel like they want to empower their indigenous or their Africanness um, allows them to make a new kind of political statement or get into intersectional um, politics with African-American groups or with uh, indigenous groups. Or, and then extend that also you know, to uh, movements, some uh, LGBTQ movements.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let's talk about assimilation for a moment, yeah. because it it impacts uh, people from other countries, right? Let's say say that way, but also it, it impacts uh, uh, the yeah. culture, the general right. culture here so, in the United States. Can so, um, can yeah. you talk more about that? Uh, kind right. of how it's affecting? Well, bit?
1: you know, assimilation is. Uh, a word that um, can have po- positive and negative uh, implications. Um, I, uh, there's a professor, Juan Flores, who passed away in 2014, is very important to me in the Puerto Rican studies field. And he liked to talk about assimilation in the strict sense, meaning not necessarily um, giving up your ethnic identity to become a mainstream American. But assimilation uh, in absorbing aspects of what was going on in the United States, and but not necessarily as a denial of who you were or where you came from. So in other words, um, a New York Puerto Rican could look to civil rights movement and see that um, they could identify with uh, having Africanness in them and that this is a way for them to assimilate because they understand, come into contact with African-Americans, understand the Africanness within them, understand that they should fight for civil rights. So that's a form of assimilation. It's not, you know, assimilation has often been used as just, uh, you know, becoming like a a middle-class suburban white American or something um, who, you know, does not speak uh, with an accent or whatever. So, um, you know, so yes, uh, assimilation... Um, Can be taken in two ways, and I I think it's good for Latinos to see that uh, some ways that they have assimilated or acculturated into the U.S. um, can be beneficial if if it's not um, erasing what came before. It was actually an additive part of who they are, and um, that's you know the kind of like what what what's going on in the book in general, and what's going on with a lot of my work is this idea of hybridity and and joining things together and making something positive about you know bringing together two different uh, influences rather than or two or three rather than having this rigid idea of who you are and not escaping that box, escaping that box. Mm-hmm.
0: yeah um Let's back up for a moment uh, about this question Spain. of Spain and Spain and, uh, and how Spain it developed how a, sense, it developed of a right. sense of religiosity right. as yeah. a way to catalog or, or put right. People well, yeah, categories. one of the
1: things that um, I did in the book was I got really fascinated with Spain. Why? Because of some of the arguments about the use of Hispanic and and Latino. There was, a, you know, when Hispanic and Latino, they sort of came about at a similar time during the Nixon administration. And Hispanic was seen as a word that the government wanted to use and that maybe some people wanted to use because they wanted to create this idea of Latinos being hyphenated Americans with this sort of European identity alluded to in the word Hispanic. And then there was a critique, particularly among Mexican-Americans, but also a lot of groups who who preferred the word Latino because by saying they were Latino, they were referring to Latin America and the fact that they were mixed race. But, you know, I was never really convinced about this idea of Spain just representing Europeanness, even though it does, apparently, if you go to Spain. And uh, that's because I did all this investigation of Spain after, in 700, uh, this Islamic caliphate moved into Spain and took over much of the southern part of Spain and then went pretty far north. And they created this society um, with the, the Christians and the Jews that were living there. The Jews actually pre- preceded the the, uh, the Islamic cal- caliphate. Um, and in Spain, for about 800 years, there was a society that had... Um, jews muslims and christians and they all lived together and it wasn't perfect but um there was a lot of exchange going on you know there was uh, a which is a, a a language that combined um, arabic and spanish and then there were a lot of jewish scholars who were translating um the mathematical knowledge that uh that came from the middle east into spanish and in many ways this is kind of like the beginning of a uh, Modernism before it was really recognized in the 18th century um, in other countries or the Enlightenment. So, what happened there was that there was a three sided model of Spain, which was divided into these three religions. And so the conflicts were between three religious groups. But when the Muslims and the Jews were uh, expelled, um or forced to convert uh, by the inquisition at the end of the 15th century which is also when the exploration the colonial period began um what happened was uh spain became you know it it dispensed with these religious identities and became this nation and then it was involved in this colonial project and suddenly it found itself in contact with african slaves and indigenous people they were trying to enslave and so Part of what I talk about in this book, which I was inspired by uh, an Argentine um, uh, scholar uh, who is in Mexico now. His name is Walter Mignolo. And he talked about uh, this three-sided thing about religion became transformed into this three-sided thing about race in the new world which was about, uh, Spaniards, indigenous people and African people sort of took the place of the model with Jews and, um, and Muslim people and Christians. And it could be argued that Spain sort of invented racism in this way in, in the transformation of this religious conflict into a new conflict, which was race conflict, because Europe didn't have this idea about race, um, at the time um uh you know even western scholars talk about racism beginning in uh in the 18th century or the 17th century but a lot of these scholars from latin america are saying that uh race is really uh came came about because of, of the spanish triangular model but you know as 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 we can see from the triangular model then we're now talking about this it's not a, a binary system and it almost requires this sort of in between mestizo or middle ground unlike the u.s. racial binary of black and white
0: right yeah um so let let's talk about mestizaje how uh, how 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 it's defined and and what the implications
1: yeah of mestizaje is a, a word that well you know better than me right it's sort of a, it's a, a <laughs> word that describes mixedness or the product of mixing and um it um it it uh well you know mexico was really one of the strongest uh um countries in terms of developing an ideology about mestizaje and um, there were these famous cast paintings that you can see in the museum of anthropology in mexico city where they it's kind of a chart cast by cast i mean like like you know almost the indian sense of caste or social grouping um and it shows how, uh, what, you know, it was, it was these paintings, a series of paintings that showed uh, people of different races intermarrying and what their offspring would look like. And they had different words for all of these different combinations. But one of the things that happened uh, in the cast paintings is that it showed you that if you kept marrying lighter-skinned people by the third or fourth combination, you would then be considered Spanish again, so that's another big difference about the way that race worked in Latin America as the way it, it worked here because when here you had the hypo descent or the one drop rule, and um if you had any uh part that was African, you would always be considered african and or African American, but in in Latin America, you know, it's still a racist system, but it's a system that allows people whiteness over time, over generations. So mestizaje was is really designed to give what I call in the book an honorary whiteness to a large um, group of people, and then that's another conflict that happens with Latin Americans when they come to the United States, because even if they're mixed they feel like they they came from this uh, country where they may have had a degree of honorary whiteness. And then they're confused by not being considered white in the United States. But at the same time, that leads to a kind of a potential for a political awakening. And that's another thing that I talk about in the book too, which is, uh, I, I'm, I'm always contrasting the Latino experience and the African American experience. And, um, there's this idea that the African Americans have much more political power because there's no ambiguity about their racial identity. And so um, it's a problem for Latin Americans that it's unclear. And I think it's one of the central reasons why Latinos don't have a lot of political power because there's a lot of ambiguousness to their identity and it's hard to have one um, across the board national identity.
0: Yeah, um, I'll I'll share with you all a, a brief story about how this applies to individuals. Um, I married a white woman from the U.S., and uh, I was with uh, with an aunt, and she said, "Oh, great! Now you you guys are better our our race, and, uh, right, or, right. Or, right, right, or Mexican la race, la right." right, right. right. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and I said, no, we're going to better the white race. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, right. So, so with this mestizaje, of course, we need to talk mm-hmm. about Malinche. Mm-hmm. So, can you okay, tell so uh, Malinche
1: was uh, uh, Hernán Cortés' uh, translator, and she um, became his partner, and um, they had offspring Although I've read some conflicting accounts uh, where he had other wives and he wasn't the only one, but um, the symbolic power of, uh, of uh, Malinche is that um, in, in Mexico a lot um, she uh, she's sort of uh, cast as this traitor um, and the entry point for the European culture, you know that. Uh, um, takes away the strength of uh, Mexican culture, but you can see that there's a kind of a patriarchal thing going on there, which uh, it's, it happens quite a bit. You know, I had, um, I teach a class about Latin music and I had Ruben blades, uh, came to to my class recently and he did this song called Plastigo, which was a classic salsa song, um, in which, uh, the uh the narrator talks about um consumerism and the, the dangers of consumerism for uh, Latinos in the United States and in the Studio 54 era but the the focus of the song at the beginning is it talks about uh women you know wearing too much makeup and it's it's again it's this sort of women are often blamed in Latin culture for this uh a negative influence or this Americanization, you know, and, uh, so that, that's, uh, that's an unfortunate thing, but, you know, um, I think that Mexican feminists and Latino feminists have, um, really taken back the idea of, um, Malinche and Llorona and, which is also a negative stereotype, um, and, um, it's, I think it's an important thing to break that idea of malinchismo because it, it goes again with, the, you know, uh, a lot of times in Latin America there's a resistance to certain kind of political thinking that threatens the, the patriarchy, and so that, um, you know, that's in, that, should that should be broken.
0: Right, there is an author... Um in, in Mexico, who wrote a book mm-hmm. in '79 called Santiago Ramirez? No, no relation to me. And in there, he states that. Um, the, the rape of Indian women by the Spanish uh, people caused a very deep injury to Mexico that has not been solved. So it's still pending. Yeah. So Malinche could be right. a representative of that, right? Because she got involved yeah. with the, with the and white And then when you get to Anzaldúa,
1: I mean, she talks about the colonial wound. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. right, right, right. Okay, um, so now let's, let's c- come back to... Today, mm-hmm. literally That's today, nice. we are expecting something. Good news. <laughs> something. <laughs> Good news. Uh, let's, let's hope or whatever it is. Um, how, how is mestizaje and Latinx affecting uh, political movements yeah. and movement in um, the U.S.? Yeah.
1: Well, um, yeah, recently I've been writing about uh, three uh, figures that uh came into prominence uh this year they're all women um there's um alexandria cortez ocasio who uh, won this uh, surprise ocasio cortez who um, won a surprise race in new york and is going to be elected because it's very hard for republicans to get elected in new york city um and uh emma gonzalez who uh was a leader of the uh, gun control movement after the Parkland High School massacre in uh, Florida. And um, Ana Maria Archila, who was just in Newsweek, I saw the other day, um, who was uh, one of the women that confronted Jeff Flake in the elevator during the Kavanaugh hearings. All of these women are Latina and uh, Latinx, and they all spoke of intersecting identities that had to do with uh, social class, with... uh, um, sex, uh, uh, gender uh, gender, or sexual preference um, Archila and Emma both uh, are, are out lesbians and um, so the idea of these women sort of uh, combining all their different identities and talking about them, you know, which uh, hasn't been done a lot um, um, and Bringing together some of the – one of the things that I wanted to book, too, is to get into this conversation about how there seems to be a mutually exclusive idea about class struggle and identity and racial and ethnic identity. And they brought them all together because one of the things that happened with the Trump election, you remember when Trump got elected, there were some commentators on the left who said that, well, Trump got elected because – the democratic party did not pay attention to class politics and they were focused on identity politics. And I was a little disturbed about that because I, I didn't think that it should be, you know, let's, you know, identity politics is all bad. We have to focus on class politics or, you know, uh, as someone who is, a a, a person of color nationalist, you know, I have nothing to do with people who want to talk about class politics. And I think that these three women um, really brought a, lo- a lot of those uh, together and showed how enormous co- uh, political capital could be created in a rel- relatively short period of time by presenting themselves as individuals who talked openly about intersectional political alliances or positions that they could take you know, in, as one person. So I think it's really fitting that they're all women because they're all always talking about um, not only social class but gender, and um, but they also happen to be uh, Latinos. And um, I think that part of that grows out of the easiness that many Latinos have about having several layers of identity or mixed identities.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting that uh, you you mentioned three women, who are kind of not only thinking in terms of the intersectionality, yes. but they are living it in a way, mm-hmm. in a very political way. Um, what's happening? Well, men? <laughs> I think men can you know
1: <laughs> play those roles. Uh, they are you know right now. Um, well, the guy who's running in. Um, in San Diego, right? I'm I'm sorry. Who's half Palestinian, half Mexican? Is sort of getting there, um, and that's a very interesting combination because they they kind of combine that dual threat. You know, I mean, Trump is always talking about not only the uh, Central Americans as being potential criminals, but then also there are some Arab. Uh, terrorists who are sneaking in with them disguised as latino rapists which is interesting um so um yeah i mean i think that you know men i think men can can get to it you know um i I don't uh i think that uh i think what's really needed is to really look at lots of levels of uh marginalization that you know that that kind of that can um occur uh, or, or just uh, um, taking political positions that are inclusive of all of these, uh, you know, agendas and, and interests. Um, you know, I think that a lot of men, politicians have been stuck in these models, which are basically about nationalist models. You know, I'm here to represent this national ethnic identity group and, um, and I don't really need to talk about all this other stuff. So I think that it'll... it'll eventually, I think I'm sure there's young people, and, well, or maybe even older uh, people who are involved in politics who are... You know, I think that they should. I think it should happen. I don't think there's any reason why it shouldn't.
0: Right. I, I'm, I'm wondering if, uh, if uh, from, from your comment, I wonder if it partly is the privilege that uh, men mm. hold. Yeah. Like, okay, I have a position right. and I don't need yeah. to worry right. much about...
1: it. I think situation. it's also... Um, yeah and i think it's the the uh men are comfortable with the previous um, nationalist sort of identities which um privileged um that that kind of masculinity or you know uh illusion of in, uh the interests of women or or gay people so um yeah i think they yeah you're right it's it's a it's a form of privilege but it's sometimes it's also just um not you know not having the ability to to see how it's so limited to see
0: how it's so limited mm-hmm. because it's mm-hmm. so taken it yeah. for granted
1: because it's so taken for granted.
0: Yeah. So um, so how how is Trump uh, unifying mm-hmm. Latinos? Well, I
1: mean that is you know not as strong as we'll see what happens with the exit polls here, but there's been a lot of polls that up to 32% of Latinx people are um, in favor of Trump or approve of Trump, which is a really horrible statistic. But um, I think that um, that demonstrates several things. I think um, the part of it is some Latinx people um, uh, wanting to identify with the white majority. Um, other times it's... Um, economic, um, success, um, in which, uh, leads them to be more interested about having their taxes cut than other issues and feeling like it doesn't really matter what the majority of my own people are going through as long as I'm okay. Um, and again, that's another problem that Latinx, I think that Latinx people need to identify with, um, politics of difference, whether it's racial or, or other in order to have, uh, unity. Um, again, when you look at, uh, what happens with African Americans, um, you know, there are like eight or 10% approval and they're, they've been actually unanimously voting for Democrats for 20 or 30 years. There's no ambivalence about where their interest lies. So, Besides that, you know, obviously uh, the anti-immigrants politics has served to um, unify um, Latinx people and maybe open their eyes a little bit. Because the worse it gets, you know, the more it's going to threaten you, whether you, you know, whether your, your family has been here for five generations or, or you are a citizen or a permanent resident. You know, permanent residents now are, you know, under question. Uh, I mean, under, under, uh, in question, you know, about losing, you know, their, their rights or citizenship. So I think that that really has unified, um, Latinx people. But again, you know, the 32% is really only 8% less than what Bush got or, or 10%. Um, so it's a little bit disturbing. Mm-hmm. Right. It should be more unified than that. More unified than
0: that. Right. Right. Um, yeah i guess all we can do is to yeah. create hypotheses without really knowing exactly what what goes on there um could it be internalized oppression
1: um well sure you know i mean that that's uh i mean that you're you're i don't know if you're going into the psychology realm here but um yeah i mean that that's part of it but it's also um Leftover, you know, negative things from Latin American culture because it's a very patriarchal culture, and then also one thing that um, I wanted to make clear, even despite everything that I've talked about in the book, is that despite the fact that there is a three-level system in Latin America, there's still a binary um, happening there. It's just not like the same binary as here. The binary uh, still is excludes people who are considered to have strong characteristics of being african or indigenous i mean uh, indigenous people or indios in latin america are still really highly discriminated against as well as afro-latinos so there's a lot of uh, racism and patriarchy that um is exists within latin american culture and i think that um it just gets uh, you know the, those parts of it resonate with what's going on with uh, the authoritarianism that's happening in the U.S. And then you even see like this thing with uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, and and I th- you know someone told me the other day I'm not sure if it was entirely accurate but that Bolsonaro rejected the idea that the Ku Klux Klan reached out to them and um, were happy with him, and I, and I th- if that's true I, I, it's because he was. He, there are some, some black Brazilians that are, you know, with Bolsonaro. And it, it's uh, this idea of uh, the, even, even the way the Brazilian society um, viewing itself as a mixed race um, culture does not disrupt a kind of a white supremacy authoritarianism, even in uh, Brazil. And that, so that can exist in Latin America. And also, I wrote briefly in the book about several Latinos that have been um, identified as been involved in white supremacist uh, movements. There was one um, in Charlottesville who was actually having to be Puerto Rican and uh, moved to Atlanta. Um, so, um, and, and uh, you know, I, I think some of the white supremacist movements are, being more open about allowing people who are not exactly white to be involved with them. And the common denominator is more about authoritarianism. So um, yeah, internalized oppression. Yeah, definitely.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, your point about racism in, in Latin America. It's, it was something that jumped at me because there is right. such denial in Latin right. America. It says, okay, the United States is racist. We are not racist. However, um yeah. um should I, um, I should, should I share this with you? <laughs> sure not? I do it all the time? Uh, <laughs> sorry mom. Um I used to go swimming every day at the National University in Mexico, sunny 20 uh, all year long, and one day my mom says, "Hey, son, you're getting too dark." Mm. And I looked at my skin. locally, I already was studying psychology, and you know, so I had a, yeah. strong, a strong ego. And I said, "Mom, I like the color of my skin, but it's it's it really left me thinking, right? So because you find this idea, the darker you are, the more the yes. less you are valued. Yes. So so it's the recognition I think needs to be very clear in in Latin America because there is a lot of racism, Certainly. as there is sexism. Yeah." Um, um how coming back to the to the um the our time with trump um there is a tremendous demonization uh, of latino people to the point where when i come back from any anywhere that i go internationally i i get some kind of fear of what's going to happen and what are th- people going to think about me how do you see affecting p- people in general, this kind of attitude uh Latinx um, people?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, um, affecting people, uh, ab- you know, about wondering, yes, as you say, uh, what people think of you Feel suddenly feeling like, uh, you're being, you know, um, demonized and, um, and you might have, uh, people reacting to you in certain ways. Um, I, I think that there's a mixed thing about that um i think that you know many of us who are from the lower classes or you know in, in the working classes are already feel that way that they were demonized you know um latinos uh are very high in uh, you know arrest statistics uh, there's a lot of parallel things that happened to latino youth and African American youth as far as mass incarceration it's not to the extent but it's certainly enough difference from you know uh, white Americans that you know there's there's definitely um there's definitely a problem you know with uh, with being marginalized and with being demonized but I think that yes now um there there's probably like a lot of indignation because it's really um going across the board. And, um, I haven't really been overseas much since, uh, you know, Trump won. So I, do, I haven't been able to gauge that. Um, maybe you, you've, uh, you've felt, uh, a little strange about it. Um, but, um, yeah, I think it's, um, it's something that, uh, I th- it's probably uh, upsetting a lot of people and um, maybe motivating them to understand I think one positive thing is that it maybe shakes some people out of their um, complacency about feeling like they are accepted and, and understand that more work has to be done to um, to move past you know the, this kind of racial demonization that affects uh, people who aren't as doing as well as they are
0: yeah thank you um let's let's move again to this question of the binary in terms of race white white black binary because uh we're, we're gonna take a, a very interesting uh side of this for a moment uh-huh. music and the influence of latin latinx music in the in the united states Can you tell well us more um than?
1: there you know i mean i i teach a lot about this but um there's been a always been a lot of interaction between so-called music from Latin America and, and the United States. Um, uh, you know, the, some of the most notable things is how some of the, the Afro-Cuban musicians came to New York and interacted a lot with a lot of, uh, jazz musicians also in new Orleans. Um, there was some, uh, there's been some influence of, uh, Caribbean music on the original, um, Jazz musicians of, uh, like Jelly Roll Morton, for instance, in New Orleans. Um, in New York, you had uh, Mario Bauza and Machito interacting with Dizzy Gillespie and um, Charlie Parker um, at the around the time of uh, bebop. And also, I talk a lot about how um, rock music, uh, and in its inception, had a lot of. Um, Uh, Caribbean influence in terms of the rhythmic patterns and uh, some of the the bass patterns and melodic patterns. But then you also had um, a lot of Latinos who played uh, significant roles, not really playing Latin music, but playing what you would consider mainstream American genres like uh, rock music and hip hop music um that have been unacknowledged because they had the strategy of obscuring who they were by changing their name and um they really participated um there were a lot of there were there were a few uh Puerto Rican rappers uh, at the birth of of hip hop and then you had a uh, tremendous influence of Mexican Americans on the development of rock music um there is a book called Land of a Thousand Dances, uh, which you may or may not have heard of, which talk about talks about how um, the Mexican-American audience in rock shows in Southern California um, in the period between Elvis Presley and the Beatles helped to keep the rock and roll genre alive um, when it was, uh, you know, it might have uh, lost, you know, there was a lot of rumors that rock was going to be eclipsed by Calypso music. You know, the Beatles were not signed by some labels because they wanted a Calypso act. So, um, and um, there was uh, the use of this Farfisa organ by um, uh, uh, Mexican-American musicians in California and Texas that was adopted by some of the original garage rock groups in the United States um, that really had a strong influence and the punk rock music of the 1970s, a lot of it referred to what they called roots rock. Um, and, and a lot of those were songs that actually were written by uh, Mexican-Americans. Like when the Ramones on their first album, they did a song called Let's Dance. And it was a cover of uh, a Mexican-American uh, uh, rock guy from L.A. His name escapes me, but he also did, uh, so he did that song. So... Um, and there were, there are people, uh, like Carlos, Carlos Alomar who became the guitar player for an arranger for David Bowie when he made the transition from glam rock to the sort of rock disco, like the let's dance albums. That's like a, all of Carlos Alomar in it. So, um, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, influence, uh, that, um, Latinos in the United States, uh, have had on, uh, U.S. genres, and then U.S. genres themselves also had strong uh, influences from uh, Afro-Cuban music. And There's even the example of Woody Guthrie singing Corridos as well, which I also left out as that crossover as well.
0: (laughs) Woody Guthrie, everybody remember that, right? (laughs)
1: Woody (laughs)
0: Guthrie, everybody remember that, right? So let's... talk about a little bit um, about how there is an assumption for many people to assume that Latinx community or the Latino culture Mm, is monolithic. There are many, many shades and many variations. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's one
1: of the, you know, one of the problems, um, with, you know, my book and the way I framed it is that, um, there's a lot of pushback from the Latino community who don't like the idea of writing about Latinos as a monolithic identity or Latinx, And they do that because the, the use of the label Latino or Hispanic in the U S um, has been associated with trying to, um, diminish the uh, influence of African indigenous culture on the identity as well. It's been used to create this sort of flat idea about Latino identity that is maybe a little generic. It does not really uh, include the particularities of different cultures. and, um, And that has happened a lot in politics. You know, with politics, they're always confused because they never can figure out what Latinos are supposed to be politically and they keep talking about Latinos as this group when um, it, it doesn't really exist. And also in the media um, where a um, media and advertising where they try to target Latinos, but they really don't know uh, what they're doing. And and so the groups are very different. You know, there are very different regions in Latin America that have created general sort of spheres of culture you know there's mexico and central america is one possible region there's the caribbean which includes the caribbean coasts of several countries in uh, south america um, and uh, then there are the andean cultures which are in the interior of south america and then you get what i call the southern cone which is a Which are uh, Chile and Argentina, and to an extent Uruguay, have these uh, Latin American cultures that are really focused on Europeanness. So um, it's very difficult, you know, to target all the or or to really to create this. Uh, So I have uh, you know I have a couple of responses to that. One is that I think that um, it's important for each Latino group to really embrace their individual country identities and really understand what that means and really um, push that forward. But I think at the same time, we need to find these things that tie us together, because there are things that tie us together. It's not just the language. One thing that I talk about, I like to talk about in terms of politics, is this idea from Juan Gonzalez's book, Harvest of Empire, which is that one thing that ties Latinos together is that almost all of our countries have been invaded or interfered with by the United States one way or another. So we should seem, we should have this um, ties that we all, we all understand that somehow the U S has messed with us, you know, and it's something that actually should bring us together. And I think that it's also important that way too, for Latinos to play a role in the United States to, um, push the united states to change some of its foreign policy because that the problem that i see with latino identity in the united states is that it then can be used to reinforce this american exceptionalism which is this idea that america is the greatest country in the world never does anything wrong when we are living examples of all the wrong things that um, the u.s does and i think that we can create a positive change in the politics of the U.S. to remind it to modify its uh, foreign policies so as not to marginalize and impoverish, you know, most of the rest of the world.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there, there is a book um, called Inside the CIA. Uh, it's an old book so in the 70s, and uh, the author, Philip Agee, was in Mexico City uh, working for the CIA and um, when the when the 68 massacre happened and he was on the phone to the president and to the, 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 the people in power in Mexico, and he was saying, no, don't shoot, don't have the, the, the army shoot the students. And they mm-hmm. said, okay, we don't care, we are going to shoot. Mm-hmm. So at that point, Filipeji realized how much damage he was inflicting, so he yeah, wrote this it's book. It's, uh, yeah, I, it's, it's an old yeah, book, but old, it's, old, it's interesting old, to see yeah, the influence yeah. of of uh, yeah. the United States in Latin America. Yeah. And another comment that I was going to make is, it's very interesting, people used to ask me if I, if I understood mm-hmm. Spanish everywhere in the mm-hmm. continent, and I said, of course, <laughs> 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 I went to Argentina. <laughs> no, uh, nothing, mm-hmm. I didn't understand yeah. I it, was a whole different way of being, yeah, kid. Um, um, what is, what is, what, what do you see the future of of uh, mestizaje and Latinx, uh, as, as you see well, it. Well,
1: um, I think that now you know there there's a good opening there because uh, a lot of the tendencies, you know, the, this intersectional thing is something that um, really comes from the you know the U.S. It's not something that Latinx people invented, and you know, the intersectionality itself is was coined by K- Kimberly Crenshaw, African American. <laughs> Legal scholar, um, you have the book that came out about the Cohambi River Collective, Black feminists, um, and um, and there's a lot of synergy between LGBTQ and working class and immigrant movements right now, and the unions. So um, all of that, it's a good moment, I think, for um, this sort of uh, hybrid or multiple identification politics to. To happen. And so I think that there's a possibility for Latinx people to, I don't know, uh, develop that part of their consciousness and bring those ideas to the table and join with these larger uh, movements. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, theorists who talk about uh, millennials um, having that kind of energy around them. As well. I've and, and you know, um, among many of my students I, I felt um that I just see a lot of that um in them, you know. Um about two or three years ago there there were a bunch of marches that young people were really driving in New York, um, where they talked about Black Lives Matter and they talked about Ayotzinapa and they talked about um, queer movements, and you know there's a overlap between queer movements and the immigration movement too, in the sense of uh the idea of coming out you know the idea um the immigr uh, some of the radical immigrant movements about people announcing that they were undocumented uh, coming out and and getting power um that way, so I think that um it's i think it's a natural movement when you know, when, you know, a lot of people like to look at the '60s and '70s as movements that failed, and they went away, and then Reagan came. But I, I think that uh, they opened up, you know, this thing which took a while, or maybe a generation of two or people to work around. And I think we're in a moment when um, there's a broader consciousness of these ideas, and there's a um, broader thinking about it. And, and it, it seems to be more in 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 praxis in in practical activity among people and they see the ideas a little easier so um i think it's a great moment uh to move in that direction i i don't know if people will choose to do to, to uh to do so but one of the reasons i wrote the book is to try to open up the possibility for a discussion about that and um and 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 give uh latinx people the choice you know in my classes Um, at Columbia I get a lot of uh, young Latinx people and some people who are not Latinx but the Latinx people a lot of the times they feel like well I don't understand my identity you know I worked really hard to get into this really elite school and I don't know what to do with myself and I I feel like I've given people the opportunity to study about themselves and really um, you know move towards defining themselves in this progressive way possible so I think that that what I, that's the reason I, I wrote the book. That's
0: the reason I, I wrote the book. Right, right. Um, let me step outside of of the the book and ask you because I really like how you think. Um, it's a puzzle for me. There are three institutions that are very important in pretty much in every society: religion, politics, and education um uh, religion in in especially in Mexico and Central America is still very strong and with what's happening with the catholic church it it's i'm surprised that the catholic church still has uh, such a uh, deep roots mm-hmm. do you have any thoughts about well,
1: that? well um yeah um the you know the liberation theology you know has always been really important in latin america um the you know, the the way that Catholicism evolved in Latin America um, had a very strong class analysis, you know, about, you know, they really took it seriously about Catholicism supposed to be, is supposed to be about, you know, helping the poorest people, helping the people with the most need, um, having a collective uh, um, idea or agenda. And um, it's, it's different from the way, the, the role that Christianity plays um, in the United States. And in fact, you know, one of the biggest disruptors, now look, I'm not trying to take sides, I'm not a Catholic uh, type person that's arguing against Protestantism, but um, the, uh, the evangelical movement in Latin America has really existed to disrupt a lot of this potential um, revolutionary er- energy that... Um, that can come out of those kind of movements. So, I mean, if you really look at Christianity or Catholicism seriously, I mean, if you really look at you know what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, it's a very um, it's it's a very collective um, uh, idea. Um, it's it's an idea of uh, um, <clears throat> not being about materialism. Um, it's it's an idea as potentially being closer to the earth. And also the fusion between the indigenous religions and um, the uh, Catholicism also grounds it a lot in uh, you know prioritizing the earth and and those kinds of things now I, I notice a lot of people who are going to argue that you know Catholicism has really destroyed a lot of uh, you know uh, indigenous culture and and I understand that um, I'm just saying that the, the way that uh, Catholic, the syncretic uh, reality of uh, Catholicism in Latin America does have, you know, in this 21st century, some um, potential um, for, um, I don't know, uh, hu- humanity, uh, organizing around human concerns, organizing for the earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: just, uh,
1: I'm not involved in the Yeah, just... <laughs> I'm just trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to be an objective observer.
0: Right, right, right. Um, it, just for uh, for information, uh, there was a psycholo- priest, uh, Catholic priest, psychologist, who was into uh, liberation theology in El Salvador, and. Um, when he took on the Catholic Church and the politics he got he was murdered mm, right yeah. so well, it's, and that's, uh, yeah it's right. incredibly well, powerful
1: well, um, you know mm-hmm. and I think that that really represents the, again that syncretism you know that that feeling that um, indigenous people are represented somehow
0: represented somehow hmm right uh, uh, one of the things we were talking okay. about
1: before one of the things that I talk about in the. has a couple of ideas um The uh, one thing that I I feel interesting about the potential for uh, multi-positional or, you know, multiple identity um, uh, way for Latinx people to be in the world is that it sort of resists this targeting by advertising that is always trying to create these profiles about who you're supposed to be about um, so you can be targeted for advertisers. So if you... Um, are always feeling that, you know, your identity could be changing and you don't always like the 10 best movies that you listed in your Facebook profile. um,
0: You know, it's it's almost like a
1: progressive idea of how to resist, you know, the relentless targeting targeting by um, media and advertising. And then finally, you know, the last chapter in the book I talk um, about what's been called neoliberal multiculturalism. And I really think that, um, it's something that is, you know, the, the ending message of the book. And I think I alluded to it earlier. And that is that, um, uh, people's pride in their identity. Um, it it needs to be to have like a strong political consciousness and can't be co-opted by, um, neoliberalism and globalist concerns and, um, and and be removed from uh, the idea of class politics.
0: Mm-hmm. Great, um, yeah. Th- th- let me stay with this question of identity because in psychology, it's a very important aspect, right? It's like where's my identity? How do you how do I define myself? And it gives the person a sense of location, value, understanding, and rela- relating to other to other people. However, the proposal with from the mestizaje hy- hybridism and, and Latinx, the idea is that the the identities can shift uh, and change, uh, almost intentionally, which is I think it's it's great because we can we can be very serious in a in a, in a church or wherever we go to. To, to To co participate here at, at school, and then we can have another identity once we leave that setting and choose to to live uh, in a different way the exa- The example mm-hmm. would be the gay and lesbian yeah. and transgender yeah. uh, people how they choose different identities some people choose to to uh, come right. out, and some people choose not to. So, right. which, so it's, it's, its identity can be flexible, allowing for a more individual and more honest growth of Yeah, ind-
1: I would agree person, with you. Yeah. It's a little bit of a prison to have a set identity.
0: Oh, I like that. <laughs> it's a little bit of a prison, <laughs> oh, like a of prison, mm-hmm. prison to have one yeah. identity or, or limited identity. So, we're going to stop here. It's been a pleasure Thank and you. an honor, <laughs> Thank you for coming you've been listening to the podcast for ciis public programs audio production was supervised by lyle barrere at desired effect if you liked what you heard you can subscribe on itunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast